Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Thibaut Chappelle, Associate Professor of Law at VU Amsterdam. We will discuss his new book, Blockchain Plus Antitrust, The Decentralization Formula, which is published by Edward Elgar, as well as his perspective on NFTs. So welcome to the show, or welcome back to the show, Thibaut. Yes, thank you very much. How are you? I'm doing great, and uh, I'm delighted to have you on the program because I'm a huge fan of your work in both the antitrust area and in the blockchain area. And as you've recognized in the very title of your book, here you've got two great tastes that that grow great together. Um, but, but before we talk about the book, I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit about yourself so that people can kind of get a sense of who you are, where you and your scholarship are coming from, and how you became interested in blockchain specifically. Sure. So, well, I mean, that's a big question. Who am I? So <laughs> I I know for a fact that I was trained as a lawyer. Uh, so I got a PhD in law and uh, more specifically in antitrust. Um, and what I'm trying to do nowadays is to think against myself in a sense. So um, to train myself as a computer scientist and understand what's the technique behind all of the texts that, that we are discussing, um, coming from the idea that what I see in law school and being, you know, teaching to, to master and, and bachelor students is that often we only discuss the tech when there is a problem. And indeed, that'll be weird for us to say, well, today we're going to talk about when everything goes according to the plan and when there are no problems at all. Uh, and yet I think we have to do that, or at least to consider why technology might be helpful so that when we address the problems, we do it in a way to preserve, if possible, you know, the good coming out of the tech. And so I've been a bit upset with that idea. So that answers the question as to who I am. Um, and yeah, for the rest, uh, I've been interested in blockchain uh, because I decided to just write one uh, paragraph about it. Uh, in my PhD quite a few years ago, just to be able to say, see, uh, I knew it all along. Uh, and then I got asked to uh, go to the OECD to discuss the the paragraph. <laughs> and eventually I thought, well, I have to write a bit more than that. And this became a, a brain virus and, and all I could think about. Um, so yeah, this is pretty much, you know, the, the, the way I entered the space. I also have to say that um, I find the cypherpunks to be absolutely fascinating uh, and so I try my best to understand where they were coming from. And when I see now the crypto punks, <laughs> which uh, seems to be, you know, a, a nice uh, characterization of those guys um, on, on the blockchain, this is full circle. And uh, this makes me very happy. So I'm a happy person, professor of law, obsessed about punk music. And uh, yes, I guess that captures who I am in uh, 2021. Well, so in the title of your book, you, you put together these two concepts, antitrust and blockchain. And, and you mentioned that you, you, you know, you addressed blockchain for the first time in, you know, in your PhD project. Um, but what about blockchain made you think about the connection between that and, and antitrust? I mean, there aren't normally, I think, two things that people sort of put together. Generally, what made you see a connection between the two? 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, as I just mentioned, I started addressing the issues. When, when I was asked to write a paper, because my PhD was discussing monopolization, I thought, well, let me see if there is something out there. <clears throat> so I tried my best to capture how you could use blockchain to infringe antitrust in the real space. And then eventually, when I understood the technology a little bit better, I addressed how you could see antitrust infringements within the blockchain ecosystem. Um, then in antitrust, if you are familiar with the space, you know that we have two big types of practices, monopolization on the one hand and cartels on the other. So, you know, paper number two naturally was for me to write about cartels. Um, and then eventually I came to realize, wait a minute, I am just addressing the issues when in fact, I, I, I mean, I thought, I think that those are serious issues, but I also believe in the potential of this technology. Um, and so I thought, well, I think now the time has come for me to write a book and to try to capture what is the potential. And, you know, I remember very precisely that day um, while I was walking in the street and, and came to realize if blockchain is indeed decentralized and distributed, meaning that there is no control or that everyone controls and that the data is located a bit everywhere, it means that there is no clear pilot in the cockpit. And if there is no clear pilot, it means that most of antitrust infringements go they go away and so this is what i tried to capture and after writing a paper with vitalik buterin um and 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 discussing the issues i realized that not all computer scientists wanted you know to design blockchain in a way to escape legal rules and standard um what you know out of our discussions what i got is that the number one priority was for them not to be uberized not in a sense of creating the sharing economy but in a sense of putting something out there and then hearing from the governments, this is all illegal. And now you, we're going to create a battle. And they didn't want that at all. And I thought, well, if computer scientists are willing to work with us, I'm more than willing to work with computer scientists. And so let me try to see if I can write a book in which I explore the potential, the potential mutual aggressions between blockchain and antitrust. And most importantly, how do we create a cooperation between the two, something that works in practice when it comes to enforcing the law, to designing blockchain and all that. Um, so this is a bit of the, the spirit of the book. So in your experience, when governments approach regulation or when they approach antitrust regulation in, in particular, what sort of framework or perspective do they use in thinking about like the question you just mentioned, like, you know, this is illegal or this is not illegal and and how might that framework be potentially in tension with thinking about regulating in the blockchain sphere so my personal experience is that it very much depends on the government uh, depending on the size depending on whether you know they have strong public services and whether their fiat currency is a, is a strong one or not um, and so there it depends and I could see that you know if you do if you are the US government or the eurozone, I, I do understand why they may want to 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 ensure that their fiat currency remains the only one, and so I, I see why there is a tension between uh, tokens and, and crypto and and those currencies. Uh, for smaller governments, I would say it's probably different because they don't have that much to lose, and you know we've seen that with El Salvador. I mean, it's a perfect way for them to attract and expose the country to to foreign investments. And so I, those are, you know, political, um, uh, geopolitical questions. But something that I I got out of my many conversation with competition agencies, so here it's a bit more specific, is that generally 
they have a mindset mindset of confrontation. Uh, and I understand why. If you look at the big tech companies, they are not here to achieve the same objective as competition agencies, right? Uh, those companies, and in fact, any company, <laughs> are here to maximize profit. Uh, sometimes they may do good, but you know this is the number one objective. And competition agencies are here to protect consumers or at the very least to protect competition, the process of competition. And so I think this mindset is is the way by which they approach pretty much all of their cases. And what I'm arguing for in the book is that they should try to become binaries a little bit and and have a different mindset when it comes to blockchain because it achieves, or at least it, it goes in the similar direction as to antitrust law, which is to get rid of coercion so that people can transact freely, which I call decentralization. And so for that reason, I think we have a big challenge, which is more than a technical challenge or the legal challenge, but the challenge, you know, try to, to change mindset here in the space. The same is also true, by the way, for part of the blockchain communities, um, because in, indeed the idea of the cypherpunk is still very pregnant. Um, but th- generally speaking, this is what I see. Uh, but I do have to say that most agencies I'm in touch with are uh, extremely enthusiastic about blockchain. Uh, they supposedly seems to understand that indeed it might be helpful um, first because they do not understand, uh, uh, detect most of the infringements to competition law. And if you design an infrastructure that may allow people to transact without most of those infringements, this is, you know, playing the game of competition agencies, something that we will discuss when discussing the NFT, the alignment of value creation and value captures is also something that plays in their interest. And so for most of them, I'm, I'm, um, you know, very optimistic because I see that they clearly understand the potential of the tech. And although they will say that they are tech neutral, I think they are not. And in fact, most of them, as I speak in 2021, are trying to preserve blockchain. And I think this is exactly what they should be doing. But this is not neutral, right? This is pro-blockchain. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think this is great and they should be proud of that. Um, So uh, I I hope that this evolution is going to be confirmed in in the coming month. Uh, What I can tell you is that I've put a message on social media two, three weeks ago saying, if you want me to explain blockchain to you, and the potential of it and where we're going to see infringements and how to deal with those, just send me an email. I'm more than happy to to give you a lecture. And I received quite a few emails from those agencies asking, can you please come from all over the globe in Latin America and Asia, in Europe? So again, th- this makes me very optimistic. This is my, you know, who I am. So, uh, but here I think I have good reasons to be, hopefully. I mean, that's really cool because like on one level, it's kind of surprising to hear that it sounds like competition regulators are more supportive of or sympathetic to blockchain than maybe even some political majorities in some countries. Um, And it's really interesting to hear why that is. When you think about the key points of tension or the primary things that regulators seem to be missing, or not understanding as well as they could about blockchain technology and how it might be potentially consistent with their their goals or maybe not as inconsistent as they might be concerned it would be. Sort of, where do you see the points of tension? So here, I would like to make a distinction between antitrust infringements using blockchain to impact the real space. 
So I've explained in the paper how we could see, for instance, supermarkets using smart contracts in a way to create a perfect collusion, uh, you know, by making sure to automate the entire cartel and the governance of it. Um, or it could be that you see uh, antitrust infringements within the actual system. So it could be that core developers are coming together and trying to collude with some miners to try to you know, change the the protocol, et cetera, et cetera. And so those are the, you know, obvious um, uh, mutual aggressions that you may see. Uh, and we do have a few cases out there. Um, and for most of those cases, it's actually very interesting to see that it is part of the blockchain community, which is attacking the other because they think that they suffered from, you know, a uh, anti-competitive practice. And this idea that the code will be self-sufficient, I think, is is slowly dying because they realize that well, you can't, you know, always automate uh, enforcement within your blockchain if you can't, you know, activate the rules, the rule of law, and and the standards and and all that. So, um, I, I think this is where you see uh, most tensions and something that is coming, and I think it's going to make it even clearer that. Uh, it is in blockchain communities to to um, have the support of antitrust communities and, and agencies is that the more it goes, the more you see practices coming from outside of the blockchain ecosystem, creating an impact inside the ecosystem. So there are there is currently a case ongoing in Brazil in which the agency there is suing one of the big bank for refusing to open bank accounts to uh, crypto developers. And the bank is saying that this the, the, the reason why they refused was for security reason, and it might be. Um, but it might also be that the bank was just trying to protect itself against blockchain competition. And we see some of the big tech companies implementing a similar uh, practice when it comes to advertisement in which they would say, oh, no blockchain advertisement on my platform for a security reason. And so it might be that tomorrow this will be, you know, exchanges saying, if you want to convert your crypto into fiat currencies, you have to pay 10%. And we have all the same rates now. Uh, so the more it goes, the clearer it's going to become that code is not self-sufficient especially when the practice is coming from outside. And this is why you may want to use the law to the best of your advantage. And as I mentioned already, and this is hard for lawyers to, to admit, but the law is not self-sufficient as well, right? We detect 10% um, of all the infringements to antitrust law, according to empirical studies. Um, and some other times, even though you may be able to detect an infringement, you can't even enforce the law. Try to enforce antitrust in China and, and good luck with that, right? So, Again, I think if you put out a infrastructure out there uh, that is, uh, generally speaking, you know, free from anti-competitive behaviors, or at least freer than the centralized world, I think this is in in, in our interest. Uh, so again, I'm, I'm positive for that reason because I think they understand that and and they see the potential of it. So that's really interesting. I mean, are you seeing people in the blockchain community then becoming more sympathetic? to the idea of at least certain kinds of regulation for certain kinds of purposes from the outside? And also to what extent are you seeing people inside the blockchain community kind of at least attempting to self-regulate to minimize the risk of these kinds of any potential anti-competitive behaviors that might crop up despite the decentralized nature of blockchain? Um, I mean, so to the first part, of your um, question, what I see 
is that there is a clear tension, and I think this should not be disregarded, between decentralization on the one hand uh, and the ability to enforce the law. And so the reason why um, I conclude the book actually saying that this is, of course, science, but most of all, this is art, because there is a balance which is so, so hard to find and that would be so beautiful in a sense that I'm not convinced we can actually reach that one. Uh, but what you do want on the one hand is that you ensure decentralization of the ecosystem. And this is precisely how you may actually um, increase consumer welfare, which is, as far as I know, the objective of antitrust by getting rid of the pilots, which means that no pilot can put the plane in a direction which is anti-competitive, or at least it is way harder. Um, and on the other end, if you have full decentralization, um, and by the way, this is something that most of the core developers have been in touch with uh, wanted, because for them, it's very clear that control equals liability. And therefore, no control equals no liability. And full decentralization is a way for them to escape the law, because it doesn't make sense in the rule of law system to go to someone and say, you're going to go to jail for the behavior of someone else. Uh, over which you could you had no control, right? Um, so full decentralization on the on the other end, as I was saying, equals um, very hard time to to enforce the law. And so we have a balance here to be to be struck in between. Um, and I'm not too sure as to exactly what should be done. I propose in the book and in a report that I've written for the European Commission different ways of trying to reach the balance. Uh, and I, and I think this should be tested. And here, not not for technical or legal reasons, but I think we have to test if we implement a technical solution to maintain decentralization while allowing the law to be applied. Are we seeing a willingness of blockchain communities to keep on using this particular blockchain? And it might be that the answer is yes, in which case, let's do it. Or that the answer is negative because it is too centralized, uh, in which case we should not do it. Because again, it means that blockchain dies and it means that you lose the ally, uh, you know, allowing you to decentralized, uh, to decentralized transactions. So I, I just wanted to make it clear that there are some tensions, you know, when it comes to the regulation. And, and this is very important to, to keep that in mind and to try the best we can to reach this particular balance. And what I see is that indeed parts of blockchain communities are trying to come up with solutions. Um, uh, something which is a bit more effective than, you know, just forking the entire blockchain uh, if uh, absolutely necessary. Um, and it's very interesting to see that when there is a case of urgency, this is where you see where the power lies, really. And so I, I start the book explaining, giving, giving um, telling you, telling the, the people a story about what happened regarding the Bitcoin blockchain just two years ago. So it wasn't such a long time ago. Uh, one day, this guy woke up in a van um, and realized that there is a bug in the code of Bitcoin and that if you exploit it, you can actually double spend all of your Bitcoins, which, of course, if this, this information becomes public, it, it, it means it's pretty, pretty much the end of Bitcoin as we know, as we know it. And so that person actually got in touch with some of the core developers and those core developers give a phone call to some of the mining pools. And so this is where you see that you know, there is, there are zones of power within blockchains. And this is the kind of things that, in my view, we have to institute, institutionalize so that, again, we can enforce the law when necessary. Uh, but as far as I know, uh, they are trying to put in place those mechanisms 
so that they will self-regulate. But again, this idea that control equals liability is very strong. And uh, it seems to me that this is, um, you know, the, the number one thing they are trying to preserve. Uh, and again, I understand why, uh, but it might be that if you keep with this extreme solution, the regulator will actually come at you and not in a way that will please you very much. And we see solutions, you know, all over the globe. China is saying that Bitcoin is illegal. We're going to see some of the countries saying we're going to cut out the internet connection if we suspect that you do blockchain related stuff with your computer. So I think it is better for blockchain communities to work with regulators right now before it is too late. Otherwise, no worries. The regulator would always find a way. Uh, and, and I think this might be the end of it. And this is not what we want. I mean, to what extent in your experience have people within the blockchain community itself begun to see what they're doing as consistent with the goals of antitrust regulation and the potential for a collaborative rather than a combative relationship with at least that class of regulators? Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if that is something strong as we speak. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to, to find a quote from Satoshi Nakamoto, actually. What I've done for the, for the purpose of the book is that I've scanned the bitcointalk.org uh, forum to try to see if indeed the, this idea of antitrust was you know, somewhere um, hidden in, in all of the messages that he, that he put out, out there. And uh, it is, actually, uh, when uh, describing the consensus, and I'm going to try to, to retrieve the exact uh, quotes, uh, but it was basically arguing that this could be a infringement to to antitrust, but that it was necessary to get a to get a free pass. Um, so uh, while I'm looking for the exact quotes, uh, the, all I wanted to say is that indeed this idea of the confrontation is is very strong. This is how most of the computer scientists were were trained, um, and this is how most of the lawyers are trained in a sense. And um, I think we we have to to find something which is which is different for the reasons that I've explained. Uh, one, because they are looking for the same, uh, to achieve the same objective. And two, because they are great complements to, to one another. And I think they will create synergies if they actually work and try to solve some of the issues that they encounter using the, the, um, the other uh, potential strength. And so, um, so yes, I do have the exact quote now uh, from December 12th, uh, 2009, it was saying that we should have a gentleman agreement to postpone the GPU arms race as long as we can for the good of the network. So this was clearly a way to say, you know what, it's go- it might be antitrust infringement, uh, the gentleman agreement, uh, but if necessary for the survival of Bitcoin, we should do it nonetheless. Uh, and uh, you have quite a few reactions to this particular message in, in which people are actually mentioning antitrust and saying, well, you know what, this this is bad and we, we should get rid of it. And um, all I, you know, my, my suspicion is that if we keep on uh, having fully centralized institutions to enforce the law, uh, I'm afraid that confrontation will come back um, and that... Um, it won't improve the common good as we as we can, and so this is why I propose a way to decentralize antitrust enforcers using blockchain. Uh, and I explore how you could use prediction markets and fear-to-key system to to come up with 
not fully decentralized regulators. I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, uh, crazy, and I know this won't be for anytime soon, but something which is a bit more decentralized, which means that it will be easier also for blockchain communities to accept what legal institutions are doing. And so this is a reflection that we should have not only because I think it is more efficient for antitrust enforcers to be more decentralized than what they are today, but also because it will be it would mean that the law is better accepted. And again, I realize this is weird for a lawyer to try to have communities accept the rules that you put out there. But I believe this is the world in which we live. And uh, for that reason, we have to change our mindset. So again, I'm hopeful, uh, but also a little bit concerned. Well, changing direction a little bit. In the last year or so, non-fungible tokens or NFTs have become a subject of increasing interest and the market uh, for NFTs of various kinds has grown really dramatically. Um, You talk about NFTs somewhat in your book. I know that you've been thinking about them as a developing phenomenon. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of your your thoughts on how they fit into the ecosystem and the kind of the regulatory concerns that you're you're engaging with in your book and in your broader project. Sure. Um, I think there I see two sub-subjects. The first one is the competition between uh, blockchain and, and big tech companies. And I think there, NFTs have, have a central role to play. Um, first, what we see is that blockchain and uh, big tech companies are made of a totally different uh, governance system. And for that reason, I think that the two will survive. And I'm not convinced that blockchain will take over the big tech companies entirely, uh, namely because of the fact that uh, public permissionless blockchains um, do not have, again, a pilot in a cockpit, which which means that the, the trust issue encountered by the big tech company goes away, right? If you look at the survey, most people will tell you that the, no, the number one reason why they are not using Facebook is not because they think the features aren't cool or that, you know, any other reasons, but because they do not trust the way by which Mark Zuckerberg is handling their data. And that goes away with a, with a blockchain. And so for that reason, I, I see how it might be convenient not to have a pilot in the cockpit. But if you have no pilot, it means that you can't also have a Steve Jobs, right? Which will put a company in a direction which is something which is so ahead of its time that it may actually capture the market and come up with great products and services. So for that reason, I think the two will survive. But the reason why I think we're going to see competition and especially dynamic competition between the two in just the coming weeks or month is because of two things. Number one, what uh, you have with blockchain is something that I called in the book, the token effect. The idea here is that you do not need to wait uh, for uh, a lot of users to join your blockchain before you can actually attract new ones because you can actually provide them with a token with the promise that it might be uh, that in the future, the value will go up and you will become a rich person, right? And that I believe, and this is why we see already in the ecosystem uh, what some people are calling the serial monopolies, this idea that, you know, there is the new blockchain that everybody's talking about. Uh, and then, yes, there are millions of users joining in just a few days. And it might be that this one will die uh, because eventually they can't uh, utilize all of those users into, you know, a 
product or service that is helpful. Uh, but this is this is something which is very strong. And if you compare that with just the network effect, the idea that you want to have lots of users before people can derive something from your products or service, um, th- this explains why you see that blockchain may compete with the big tech companies in, in just, uh, again, a, a few weeks. And number two, the NFTs. I think this is central in the in in understanding the the state of competition between blockchain and big tech companies, uh, because again, what you do with them is that you align value creation with value capture, which of course is not something that you have when you talk about the big tech companies. Uh, you will put the pictures and the videos, so you will create the value, and those companies will exploit uh, the value and 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 capture what's coming out of it. Um, and maybe you know this is good, maybe this is good enough, but. What we see certainly is that if you do create an NFT, you will capture, you know, 99% of the value uh, minus the 1% for the intermediary in, in the middle. Uh, and, and that, I believe, might also be a reason why uh, if you create a social network in which you say to people, you can use this one and capture most of the value and sell your pictures and, you know, the, your profile and all that versus you can use Facebook and capture pretty much nothing. I'm sure it's going to create a willingness for people to use uh, the the decentralized social network uh, in which you can actually have the NFTs. And so this is number one. And number two, and I do want to mention that right away because some people might be thinking, but wait a minute, you can actually create an NFT out of a tweet, which is still a centralized uh, social media. And this brings me to big tech companies using the NFTs. And here I see different different things. First, uh, it might be that they will create their own blockchain and will try to sell you NFTs. And I think this won't work because you go back to the trust issue. If Facebook says tomorrow there is now a Facebook blockchain and you could buy NFTs, uh, well, depending on the the governance of it, I, I do not really see that as being an NFT because I know they may take the value away from me, you know, and all that. So I think this won't work. So if they are faced with the only solution to use the public permissionless blockchain, such as they exist, it means that every time they use those blockchains to put NFTs out there, first of all, this will benefit the layers, uh, the layers one of those blockchains, which some people have been calling the FAT protocol. The more people are using it for NFTs and other applications, the better it is for the actual layer one. And second, it might be indeed that you are trying to sell as an NFT something coming from outside of the actual blockchain, such as a tweet, but here you do have a, a legitimacy problem. Um, how do you know if the person sending you the tweet is the actual uh, owner of it, the actual creator of it? Um, and it means that you, if you want to, to bring the proof that you are, you can do it. But this is costly, right? Time and money because you will have to engage in transaction cost. And this is why I think selling an NFT within, which is native to a blockchain environment, makes it actually way easier and uh, way cheaper uh, than doing it uh, if you are a big tech company trying to to reach to the ecosystem. So for that reason, I think NFTs are central. Um, and the very last thing that I want to mention here in this regard is that I think Facebook using NFTs in the metaverse, at least this is what they, they said in, in the introduction video, I think is a capitulation or you could call it a surrender um, because I I see that as a way for the company to say, you know what, we see that blockchain power is growing and there is nothing we can do. And so we're going to try to derive value in a different way. 
by saying, for instance, if you own a NFT, you can actually put it as a painting in your metaverse room. But again, the actual value of it is captured by the person who designed this particular NFT. So they try to reach to the ecosystem that way. But I think this will actually benefit again, the NFT creators and the layers one behind. And this will strengthen competition between blockchain and the big tech companies. Do you think demand for NFTs and more sophisticated NFT-related technology is likely to drive further competition, innovation, maybe creative destruction in the blockchain space itself, like between existing and maybe new blockchains? Certainly. Um, I've I've recently written a report on smart contracts, and uh, I was amazed to see that certain smart contracts were used 600 million times uh, over just six months. And then one day they die and, you know, people switch to a different one. And if you look at the statistics, they are, they are never used, you know, just even once uh, in, 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 in a month. So uh, certainly the same, I think, will happen when it comes to, to those NFTs. Uh, something that will become central eventually is the interoperability between those, right? Uh, I've seen already that there are uh, meta platforms in the sense that, that allow you by just entering the keywords to see um, where are the NFTs if they are being sold on Rarible or OpenSea or any other platforms? Um, but uh, if indeed uh, interoperability is emerging from uh, the bottom um, and, and not being imposed somewhere by a government, I think this will benefit the ecosystem and this will mean that you will have strong competition. I'm not sure if it means that you have disruptive competition in the space uh, because this will mean that you will need to create an entirely new market and uh, I think we are not ready for that the NFT market is just booming and so we're going to see I think stronger competition within the market such as it exists um, and this is why I think we're going to see interoperability and uh, I mean already right uh, this this is something that uh, you can more or less easily do uh, to sell one in one platform and then to try to to transfer it to another one um, so again, prediction is hard, especially when it's about the future. So I might be all wrong, um, but this is what I see. So, I mean, to date, it seems like the NFT market has primarily been one driven by a certain kind of scarcity where, you know, NFT tokens are intended to kind of stand, perform as like stand-ins for some kind of image or concept or or for something something else and the value seems to depend upon you know people's kind of collective associations with or demand for whatever it is a particular token happens to be associated with do you see that as being a dominant role for nfts going forward or do you see the valuation shifting to the token itself in some way. In other words, like to the extent that you can kind of predict anything about the way that the smart contracts might develop and the way the blockchains might incorporate them, you know, do you see a kind of a further development of what we're already doing or do you see the likelihood of sort of moving in a new direction? No, I think, you know, if you go back to the archives of the New York Times and the Washington Post and all of those great newspapers uh, in the 90s, what you will see is that when they were addressing the cyberspace, they saw something 
uh, and they missed the most important part. What they saw is that it will change the way by which we exchange information, right? So they would say, hey, we can send emails and it's very convenient and we don't have to sell to send a postal card and all that. What they didn't see is that the internet will also change the nature of information. And now it's very clear, right? We use videos all the time. We do the podcast and all that. And I think the exact same is true for blockchain. What we understand right now is how it changes the way by which we transact. So I can say, hey, a smart contract is very convenient because you can automate the conditions and all that. And what we do not understand, and if I understood that, I will be creating my startup as we speak, is how this will change the actual uh, nature of the transactions. And uh, I think to some degree, NFT is just one um, uh, you know, of those uh, new emerging ways of transacting. This wasn't something possible to sell scarcity in the online environment wasn't possible before. Um, and uh, I, I think this is just one business model and one good idea and new ones will emerge. I'm not sure as to which ones that will be. And um, I think it's going to be fascinating to see that most of those will actually appear out of the combination of existing technologies, right? So the NFT is a perfect example. This is a technology allowing you to, to put pictures and, and videos and format on the computer combined with a ledger, which is immutable, decentralized, distributed, and boom, you have NFTs. And uh, the same will, will be true, I'm sure, for new ways uh, of transacting and, and new different types of transactions. Um, but as far as the NFT is, is concerned, what I think we might be seeing is that the the more it will go, the more you will see original content, content which is creating for the purpose of being an NFT being sold. And uh, I think you know those uh, big things that we sales that we've seen, such as a, a, a random company taking the Mona Lisa and, and saying, "Well, I'm going to sell it to you." I think it's, it's working now because it's a lot of fun. Uh, but I'm not sure this is the future of the space. Anyone could do that. And if you are not the creator of it, I'm not sure if the value will stay up as it is. Uh, but again, you know, I can tell you that my number one prediction when it comes to, to come back to antitrust and, and blockchain was that you will see cases regarding how blockchain is being used to impact the real space. And I was predicting that all over the place. And this is not what happened. The first case is, actually concern how you see antitrust infringement within the blockchain ecosystem. So I'm just telling you that to tell you that I've been wrong more than once. And this might be that what I just said is also playing wrong. Well, so one thing that's been the topic of a lot of conversation within the NFT space is the, well, it seems like at this point, inevitability of some kinds of regulations of various kinds, specific to NFTs. And it just seems like the market has grown so quickly that the regulators are kind of on, on their heels and haven't figured out what, if anything, to do yet. But there's concerns, you know, about, about obviously potential antitrust regulation, but also, you know, like, you know, securities type regulation, about taxation, about, you know, governance of different blockchain oriented organizations. Um, sort of what do you see as the, you know, like talking to regulators about uh, about NFT specific regulation, what would you encourage them to keep in mind when thinking about this new market? And what would you say to people in the NFT space about how to communicate effectively with regulators so they understand better what the kind of needs and risks of regulation might be? 
Sure. So I'll start with the second part of the question. I think it's central to educate regulators. Most of them are willing to learn. Uh, and actually to do that on a technical basis, because somehow they are scared of blockchain. And I think this is great. I'd rather have them scared about the tech than to be to, to think that they understand it as they do with AI, when in fact, most of them don't, because it, it is also very technical. So I think it's great that they are scared because they are willing for, for, for some of them to put a, you know the time and to, to try to really understand it from a technical basis. And there is a clear demand for that. And if communities are willing to engage and come up with great programs and all that, I think they will be willing to, to listen. So this was as to the second part of your question, but for the regulators out there, I think the number one thing to keep in mind is that we are talking about a tech with different layers. Layer number three, in a sense, the app layer is the one of the NFT. And here, what you can do is that you can regulate certain aspects of it. So you could say, if you buy an NFT, those are the IP rights, right? So you do have the right to put it out there. You don't. You can do this with that. You can you can you know print it and and put it somewhere in your office, or you cannot. So this, I think, we can actually come up with regulations, and uh, we could have some clear rules. But this is only the app layer. Something which is underlining uh, underlying the this uh, particular layer is the 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 layer number one, the one of the database with the very specific characteristics. And if you do not engage with this one, there are certain things that you cannot do if you simply regulate the app layer. So, for instance, if you want to say, well, NFTs are not legal if they are, let's say, not coming from the original creator. Uh, great, yes, you can say that. But then you do have a problem, which is that a blockchain is immutable. And so therefore, what do you do out of it, right? The actual contract written on the blockchain uh, signifying that you've put the NFT out there will be here to stay. And so this is where we have to consider that the characteristics of the layer one will impact all of the other applications on top of it. And this is where I think regulators in just a few months or years will realize it and will be tempted to just go straight to the layer one and this is where I see a clear danger, because if they start saying this is exactly how you're going to design your blockchain, uh, I see a danger because for the purpose of applying the law, there are clear solutions. You get rid of decentralization, you get rid of distribution, you get rid of immutability, and you get rid of pseudonymity. And if you do all that, then it is way easier to apply the law and to enforce it. But as I mentioned, then you destroy the tech and you destroy something that might be very helpful when it comes to, you know, let's say reaching antitrust goals, uh, but it could be many other goals. And so for that reason, uh, we need to make it clear that it might be necessary to impact the layer one, the core characteristics, but we should do it in a way to preserve what differentiates blockchain from other uh, ecosystems, uh, namely the centralized ones and, and the big tech companies. And if we do not, what you do is that you put blockchain too close um, uh, to uh, the big tech companies. And if so, blockchain will die. This is basic Darwin theory. You want to have very specific characteristics so that you can actually utilize those in your environment. And so this is a discussion that we need to have right now instead of just pretending that you could regulate whether or not you could change the color of an NFT, because if not, the regulator will, will, will actually realize that the layer one is key and they will, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of that, uh, you know, try to mingle with it and, and, and change it in a way which is not ideal. Uh, so this also comes back to the second part of your question. What should be done? Should you be a NFT creator? 
uh, make sure that this message is out there and that people understand that the layer one is central and that those are the characteristics you need. Otherwise, you can't engage in the market. Well, Thibault, in in closing, I wonder if you could tell listeners how they can get a hold of your new book and also maybe say a little something about what you're working on now and where people should look for that. Uh, Sure. So the book is, so old world, you can buy the paper version of the book, Uh, kind of uh, modern world. You could uh, get the book open access. If you just uh, Google blockchain plus antitrust, you go straight to the publisher website and there you could download the XML of the book or New World, you can actually buy the cover of the book as an NFT. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I actually, this idea came from one of the very first NFT project that I've seen uh, back in 2020. It, it, it seems like it was a very long time ago when in fact it wasn't. Uh, and what I saw is that one author was actually selling paragraphs of his book as NFTs. And I thought, well, this is such a fantastic idea. Uh, but um, what I'm trying to do here is to just sell the cover, which was designed by a artist living in New York. Um, so this is what you can do, uh, although this won't give you the right to exploit the cover of the book, <laughs> uh, although you can. Um, but this won't give you a paper version of the book, uh, although if you want one, feel free to get in touch with me. Um, so this this is... Um, yeah, for the first part of your question and uh, as to what I'm doing right now, I'm I've have a new obsession with, but still ties to to blockchain, which is to try to study and to capture complexity theory. So, complexity theory is the science of how system reacts to the context it creates, and I think this is precisely how you see blockchain evolution and NFT evolution in the space. You see, people are transacting. This will change the type of transaction that they do. Eventually, this will change the environment, whether it is the technical environment, the legal environment with the new regulations coming. And changes in the environment will actually impact those players and will change the way by which they interact and so forth and and so forth. So I've been a bit uh, obsessed with this idea of complexity. I see that everywhere. I just had a walk before recording these episodes and I, and I you know, was thinking about complexity when watching trees and the leaves and how this will impact the people cleaning the street and how this will impact the tree. So uh, this is what I'm doing and uh, feel free to follow me on social media. Uh, if you just uh, enter my name, uh, I'm sure you will see a uh, new project out there in, in the coming uh, weeks. Uh, we've been also launching the Amsterdam Law and Technology Institute just uh, last week. And so I'm going to make sure uh, that, uh, you know, uh, we have great content coming coming uh, our way and we have a fantastic team working on the website. So I'm very confident that uh, you should subscribe to our newsletter. So if you just uh, enter alt.amsterdam, uh, you get to the content. Amazing. Well, Thibaut, thanks as always for coming on the program. It was uh, great talking to you about your book, about NFTs, and to hear your thoughts about, you know, how we ought to think about them in, in the regulatory sphere. Yes, well, you know, thanks a lot. And next time we do have to talk about punk music because we share that in common. And so uh, for the third episode, I think we have no choice but to do that. Uh, but thanks, thanks again for everything you've been doing. Awesome.
this here's the story about the Rock Island line. The Rock Island line, she runs down into New Orleans. And just outside of New Orleans, there's a big toll gate. And all the trains, they go through the toll gate while they, they gotta pay the man some money. But of course, if you got certain things on board, you're okay, you don't have to pay the man nothing. And just now, we see a train, she's coming down the line. And when she come up near the toll gate, the driver, he shout down to the man, he say, I got pigs, I got horses, I got cows, I got sheep, I got all livestock, I got all livestock, I got all livestock. And the man say, well, you all right, boy, just get on through, you don't have to pay me nothing. And the train go through. And when he go through the toll gate, the train get up a little bit of steam and a little bit of speed. And when the driver think he's safely on the other side, he shout back down the line to the man. He said, I fooled you, I fooled you. I got pig iron, I got pig iron, I got oh pig iron. Now I'll tell you where I'm going, boy. Down the Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road. The Rock Island line is the road to ride. Yes, the Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road. And if you want to ride, you got to ride it like you find to get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island line. I may be right, may be wrong. You know you're going to miss me when I'm gone. Down the Rock Island line, she's a mighty good road. The Rock Island line is the road to ride. Yes, the Rock Island line is a mighty good road. And if you want to ride, you got to ride it like you find to get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island line. Lord, come here to see me again. Hey. Down the Rock Island Line, she's a mighty good road. The Rock Island Line is the road to ride. Yeah, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road. And if you want to ride, you gotta ride it like you find to get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island Line. A B C W H Y Z, cats on the cover, but he don't see me. 